Uh, my name's Philip, uh, if we haven't met before. Uh, we're going to dig into that passage uh, in just a sec. Just let me pray for us before we get into that. Uh, Heavenly Father, please help us to understand this particularly difficult passage of your word tonight. Um, please help us to see Christ in it and to see the hope of Christ in it wherever our lives are at the moment. Uh, it might seem foreign and it might seem distant, uh, but we know that you are near to us, Lord. Uh, so please help us as we need tonight. For Christ's sake, we do pray these things, Lord. Amen. Uh, so my number will be up on the screen as well in the corner. Um, it's particularly large there. I think it gets smaller over time, so um, take note of that. Um, but this evening we're going to be finishing the book of Two Kings. Some of you may be uh, euphoric about that, um, but uh, I'm going to miss it a little bit, just a little bit. Um, but at the end of the book, uh, right at the end of the book, we hear that God has finally had enough. He's finally lost his patience with his people. He's exiled them from the land. And this is almost uh, one of the most hopeless chapters in the entire Old Testament. Uh, but in order to actually understand that hopelessness, what's actually been lost in this chapter, I think we need to go back and look at the promises God has made up until this point in the Bible, the hopes that have been made and building in the, in the story of the Bible up until now. So we're going to go through them pretty quickly. Um, but there are seven key points in the Old Testament so far that I think are helpful to understand what's going on here tonight. So first up, in the beginning, God created humanity, Adam and Eve, to rule the Garden of Eden, and God dwelled with them. But then the tempter lured humanity away from God, and we fell into sin. But God promised that he would send someone from Eve's descendants who would destroy the power of that tempter. Fast forward a few hundred years to Adam's descendant, Abraham. God made these huge promises to Abraham that he would give his descendants a land. They would become a great nation. They would become a great blessing to all the people of the earth. Then Abraham had a son, Isaac. He had a son, Jacob. At the scene of Jacob's death, he sits his 12 sons around and he tells them something about what's going to happen in their future. This is what he tells his son, Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So we've seen that a redeemer would come from the line of Adam and Eve. A great people, a great land will come from Abraham's line. Now we hear that a ruler is going to come from Judah's descendants. Then God's people, they're freed from slavery in Egypt. They start the journey to the land God has promised to Abraham. But in the meantime, God gives them instructions of how to build a tabernacle, a kind of a tent where he's going to dwell with them, where his presence is going to go with them. Of course, there are a few complications, that's putting it mildly along the way, but Israel eventually settles in the land that God promises them. But when they're in the land, they demand a king, just like the other nations. God knows full well that this means that they're rejecting him as their king as they ask for this, but God, he does give them a king. Under one of these kings, they build a temple, which symbolized God's presence again with his people in the land that he promised them. And to David, a king from the line of Judah, God gives one more huge promise. I'm going to read it now. It says, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up one after your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne 
of his kingdom forever. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So from Adam and Eve to Abraham, to Judah, to David, God's promises keep building that someone will come from their descendants who will become an eternal king. So from there, the people of God, they're waiting, they're waiting with every king born from the line of Judah, from the line of David, wondering if this is going to be that eternal king. So all throughout the Old Testament, up until our passage this evening, God's promises have been snowballing. One by one, they've been realized, a people, a land, God's presence with his people, and a king. And earlier in the book of Kings, we actually kind of saw this. God's people living in God's land with a temple symbolizing God's presence, with a king in the line of David serving under God's rule. Uh, but even so, I think everyone wasn't so naive that they believed these promises had been fulfilled yet because just like we've seen every week, none of these kings ruled even close to perfectly, often far from it. But mostly this vision of what God's promise for his people has slowly been growing, being realized throughout the Bible so far. That is, until the chapter this evening, where everything that's been building in the previous 337 chapters of the Bible, the people, the land, the temple, the king, they all seem to be undone in one chapter. Because by the end of 2 Kings, chapter 25, we'll be confronted with so much death and destruction, not just of people and places, but seemingly of the promises of God. Bit by bit, this chapter confronts us with the impact of hope being taken away from the people of God and of all these promises seeming to be coming undone. Uh, which we'll see first up in our first section, the death of the king from verses 1 to 7. So last week we saw Manasseh being just about the worst and most wicked king in Israel's history, and then straight after, we got Josiah, who was just about the most faithful king in Israel's history. Uh, things were kind of seesawing a bit, and they seesaw back again, because this time it's King Zedekiah on the throne, and we hear that he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And at the end of chapter 24, the last chapter, the last thing we heard was, because of the Lord's anger, it came to a point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. God's patience has finally run out because of the wickedness of his people, they are cut off from his presence. We see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, bring his army to invade Judah. They build a wall around it so that no one can escape, no food or drink can be brought in. And so we read that after about six months, the famine had become so severe that the people of Judah have run out of food. But then the city wall is breached. Some of the people of Judah flee, actually including their king, King Zedekiah. Uh, but the army finds him. Zedekiah, his entire army scatters. This king of Judah from the line of David, this is more than just one man who's under threat. This is seemingly the promises of God under threat. Then in one of the most brutal scenes in the entire Bible, we read that they seize Zedekiah, bring him to the king of Babylon, they slaughter Zedekiah's sons before his eyes, then they blind Zedekiah, bind him in chains, and take him to Babylon. They make sure the last thing that Zedekiah sees is his hope being cut off before his eyes. Then 
His eyes are cut out. All of his sons, all the potential heirs to his throne who have continued David's line, who God's promises would stay alive through, they're all killed before his eyes, and that's the last we hear of him. Zedekiah is carted off to Babylon, he's blinded, he's grieving, he's enslaved, and that's it. So at this point, God's people, they're still technically living in God's land, even though the city is under siege. But the king in the line of Judah has been blinded, carried away, all of his sons have been killed. That hope of the eternal king of 2 Samuel chapter 7, it seems to have been lost. But that's not the end of it, because next we see the death of the temple in verses 8 to 21, where the destruction intensifies. We read that they burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. The captain of the guards deported the rest of the people who remained in the city. The deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, the rest of them, but he left some of the poorest in the land to be vine dressers and farmers. In a couple of verses, the temple is destroyed and most of the people of God have been exiled. But it isn't enough for the writer to just tell us the temple is destroyed. They want us to feel the weight of what's happening here. So in documentary-like detail, we get uh, what we hear about uh, the bronze pillars, the water carts, the bronze basin, pots, shovels, dishes, fire pans, sprinkling basins, Pretty much anything gold, silver, or bronze that wasn't nailed down, all of these are pointed out to show us the full weight of the hope that was stripped away. We even hear about the height and weight of some of these articles, but it's almost like the writer is grieving their loss when they write, the weight of the bronze of these articles was beyond measure. It's like they just sigh and say, they took so much, it was more than I can even imagine. The destruction of the temple, they took every precious metal, they even took all the priests to the king of Babylon and then killed them all. Finally, we read, a little bit too succinctly, so Judah went into exile from its land. All that hope that had been building over thousands of years, spanning across the Old Testament, across the books of Samuel and Kings, all that hope seems to have been undone, carried away, destroyed, killed, off to Babylon, article by article. But even in the midst of all this hopelessness, the land is still called its land. In some sense, this land still belongs to its people, even when they're being carried away from it. Uh, we haven't been since just before COVID, but Serena and I, we've taught at a school on the thai Burma border a few times. It's a school for Karen refugees. It's a people group uh, from Burma. One of the first things you'll learn about the Karen people, because they'll be pretty quick to tell you, because they're pretty proud of their land. Even though the Burmese government doesn't actually recognize it as, as their land, uh, even though the Burmese army drove them out of their land, which is why they're refugees in Thailand, still, every time I ask the students about Karen State or Pa'an, the capital, their eyes light up with pride because of how much they love their land. And it's kind of the same for God's people. They, they don't live there, but it's still their land, and there's still the hope that one day they will live there peacefully. So, so far, we've seen the last king in Judah from the line of Judah killed, <laughs> as well as his sons. And now we've seen the temple destroyed and carted off to Babylon, and the people and the land 
are under threat. Which brings us to our next section, the death of a nation, in verses 22 to 26. Because it isn't finished yet, we'll, uh, we'll hear that um, Babylon, they appoint a guy called Gedaliah as the governor over the people who are left in Judah. Now, this Gedaliah guy, he isn't from the line of Judah or of David. He's uh, the grandson of King Josiah's secretary. Now, I don't know why he seemed like the guy for the job. Maybe um, he was just hyper-qualified. Maybe the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, didn't care about the line of David thing. But nonetheless, we read that four military leaders come to Gedaliah's headquarter at Mizpah, which wasn't in Jerusalem uh, because Jerusalem was so badly destroyed. And Gedaliah assures them that they can live safely under Babylon's rule, that everything will be fine if they just stay in tow. But they aren't having that because a guy called Ishmael and his buddies, they butcher Gedaliah, then they butcher everyone else. So why did they kill Gedaliah? We, we can't know for sure. But I think most likely because it's mentioned to us that Ishmael was from royal blood, from the royal family, he was from the line of David, so I think maybe we're meant to assume he was so offended that he wasn't appointed as king, this Gedaliah guy outside of the line of David was, so he organised with him and his buddies to go and take him down. But I think if he was keen to become the next king, it's pretty ironic because there's actually nothing left to be the king of. Because we read that all the people from the youngest to the oldest, all the commanders of the army, they left and went to Egypt for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So across this chapter, Judah, it goes from being full to only having the poor, vine dressers and farmers living there to basically empty. The Davidic king, he was blinded and his sons killed. The temple was destroyed. Now the people of God have left the land of God that was promised to them bit by bit. Every hope seems to have been undone throughout this chapter. That's the four faded out symbols, if that wasn't wasn't clear through, <laughs> through that contrast level. Uh, but that brings us to our final section, uh, because you might have been thinking this whole time, things seem so hopeless and God made these promises. He can't turn his back on them. Well, if that's your instinct, that's fantastic, because that's right, because God, he isn't done yet, which we see in the slightest glimmer of hope in the last story, the life of the king from verses 27 to 30. I almost like to imagine this scene like a post-credits scene in the film. Everything's been said and done. The main character's dead. Surely there can't be a sequel. But then there's one more scene after the credits are finished, after the faithful few are left in the cinema. A few images that are a little bit ambiguous that are suggesting to us maybe the door is a little bit open for a sequel. This book could easily have ended at verse 26 with a judgment of exile, but the writer felt that this story needed to be told too. And this happens 26 years after the previous verses. So in those 26 years, this is the one story he wants us to know to take away with us. Because think of all those promises of God that we started with, of God's people in God's land, with God's presence under God's king. If you were an Israelite living through this, you would have been wrestling with your faith in a pretty intense way, whether God was actually worth following, whether God was actually good to you, whether he was worth trusting in. I mean, you and your people have been waiting for centuries to see the fulfillment of these promises, 
Just like that, they're all smashed to bits. And so is all hope actually lost? Has God actually failed? But with the rich subtlety of a great writer, this story is here to give us a ray of hope. Because you remember that promise God made to David that I will establish the throne of my descendant forever. This whole chapter, that promise seems to have been coming undone with Zedekiah being blinded after his sons are killed, Gedaliah being killed by Ishmael. There's obviously nothing eternal about those kings. But there's actually one more Davidic king out there. We haven't heard from him since the start of chapter 24 because, um, close enough, Uh, because he only reigned for three months and we read that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But the reason we haven't heard from him, the reason that he only reigned for three months, (laughs) yeah, I'll take that. Uh, King Jehoiakim of Judah, along with his mother, his servants, his commanders and his officials, they surrendered to the king of Babylon So the king of Babylon took him captive. This Jehoiakim guy has been in prison in Babylon for 37 years. When he came to the throne, he was only a teenager, but now he's well beyond middle-aged, having spent most of his life in a Babylonian prison. This king in the line of David, he's living on, if in exile, if in prison. And so I'll read it all now, the final passage of 2 Kings from verse 27. On the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of Judah's King Jehoiakim, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned King Jehoiakim of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and he died regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. Excuse me, I'm going to have a quick drink. So Jehoiakim has been scratching a mark in the wall of his Babylonian prison every day, and he's obviously running out of space because we hear that he's been there in Babylon for 37 years, 11 months, and 27 days. He survived, he survived so long he's even outlived Nebuchadnezzar. But then his son takes over a guy called Evil Merodach. He sounds like a pretty good guy. He becomes king of Babylon and he pardons King Jehoiakim of Judah and releases him from prison. We aren't told why, but for some reason Nebuchadnezzar's son has been looking on at this exile, at the treatment of this foreign king and thinking, as soon as I become king, the first thing I'm going to do is release this guy from prison. And I don't know if you noticed it, but twice in verse 27, he's called King Jehoiakim. He might be a king without a country, a king without a land, but he's still a king in the line of David. And for some reason, he's pardoned, he's honoured, and he's cared for. So why was he honoured, pardoned, cared for? Why was he seated at the highest table of the king? Why was he given new clothes? Why was he given room service every day for the, for the rest of his life? Well, it's not because he was a particularly good king. All we hear about him is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It was purely because of God's commitment to his promises. This king in the line of Adam and Eve, in the line of Abraham, in the line of Judah, in the line of David. God is caring for him a million miles from home to give his people the slightest 
ray of hope that God is still at work to fulfill his promises. Because we will hear his name again uh, when we come to the start of Matthew's gospel. This is what we read. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Jesse fathered King David, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. It's one of those quirks of the Bible that sometimes kings have multiple names. Jehoiakim is called Jeconiah here, I don't know why. I'm not sure anyone knows why, but just so you know, it's the same guy. But the genealogy continues all the way to Jesus, where it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Matthew 1, it picks up where 2 Kings 25 leaves off, letting us know where this tiny ray of hope was heading. It was only because God looked after Jehoiakim in prison that his promises could stay alive. So that one day, in just about the darkest season of Israel's history, the Messiah would be born. Who is where all of these promises were always pointing. Because Jesus would become the new Israel, who would live faithfully where they failed. Jesus would become the temple where we meet God. Uh, Sorry, I think I skipped one there. Jesus would become the place where God dwells with humanity. Then Jesus would become the temple where we meet God. And Jesus would become the perfect king who would never fail to serve his people but would give up his life for their sake. At the time of the exile, everyone would have thought that the exile was the ultimate image of being distanced from God. Uh, But actually in Jesus' death, we see an even greater image of being distanced from God because Jesus faced all the wrath, all the judgment, all the exile from God for our sake. He took on all the punishment for all the sin that kept us from God so that if we trust in Jesus' death for our sake, we would never be cut off from God again. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus, which means that in Jesus there is always hope. Even when all hope seems to be lost, when God's promises seem to have failed, God hasn't forgotten. The writer of the book of Kings, they couldn't let the final note be judgment and exile because God will always fulfill his promises and God is always at work to give his people hope in Jesus. Even that faint glimmer at the end of two kings, a tiny light, it's reflecting to show us Jesus thousands of years ahead. So if you're feeling like you're struggling to see hope this evening, if you're feeling weary or if you're feeling like God has abandoned you, if you feel like you just keep waiting for God to come through and move your life forward but you keep taking backward step after backward step, remember this story this evening that throughout everything in this chapter, it seemed like every light was going out one by one, but even in a pitch black room, a light flickers because God is always at work to give his people hope in Jesus. And if we are in Christ, there is always hope for us. So let me pray that for every one of us now. Our Heavenly Father, you alone are the hope and healer of your people. You have promised us the hope of a world where there will be no more sorrow or sickness or dying. 
By Jesus' death and resurrection, you've set your people free from both the penalty of sin and the fear of death. Give us a firm trust in your goodness and the fulfillment of all of your precious promises. Now, if God's word spoken to your heart this evening, uh, if anything of struggling to see hope has resonated with you, I'm just going to give you a minute to pray that to your Heavenly Father now. So I'm just going to give you a minute to uh, speak to your God in your heart about that. Now, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to call the band up for the final song, then I'll get back up to see if you've sent me any questions.